lots of writers write in the super early morning. And there is something about like a period between about 5 a.m. and 9 a.m. where it's like the door to the subconscious is still a little bit open. And it's possible to do work of a quality in those hours. It is virtually impossible to do at any other time. And so this is why you see even, you know, people like Ernest Hemingway, you know, who was, you know, this was an incredibly active guy, you know, deep sea fisherman, you know, could drink with the best of them. But every morning he got up and he was at his desk by six in the morning, no matter how late he'd been up the night before. And having that routine was, he thought, really essential for, you know, for doing great work. And to judge by his output and that of lots of other you know, great writers and scientists and mathematicians and other people, he was absolutely right. So routines serve as a foundation for and support for creativity rather than, you know, an obstacle to it, as we often tend to believe. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is a futurist who studies people, technologies, and the worlds they make. With an academic training in history and sociology of science, he blends history, anthropology, and sociology, plus ethnography, interviews, historical case studies, and literary analysis to understand users and their worlds. For the past two decades, he's worked as a technology forecaster and futurist, helping companies understand new technologies and global trends and their strategic and business implications. He's the founder of Strategy and Rest, a consulting company in Silicon Valley and a visiting academic at Stanford University. He's also an author, having written books such as Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less, The Distraction Addiction, and has written for Slate, Wired, Atlantic Monthly, and Scientific American. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, author of Shorter, Work Better, Smarter, and Less, Dr. Alex Pang. Dr. Pang, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really, really appreciate having you here. Well, thanks very much. It's great to be with you. So if you wouldn't mind, Dr. Payne, can you talk to us a bit about your journey? You know, how'd you get to where you are today? What were some of the struggles you faced along the way and how did you overcome them? Okay. First off, I think that this interest in the role of rest in creative lives and the way that organizations can play a role in sort of helping support that in sort of their employees is one that actually has really deep root, right? The very, I studied history of science as an undergraduate and the first class I took 
in that field was on called Invention and Discovery in the Arts and Sciences. So it was about kind of the psychology of creativity. And so it kind of set up the questions that I've been trying to answer in sort of in my last three books. You know, and then I think that and I really started to recognize the value of rest, both as of something to cultivate in one's own life, but also kind of subject to investigate and to write about when, you know, I started the, I sort of started paying the price for not getting enough of it. I've worked as a technology forecaster, as a futurist for almost 20 years now. And about halfway through that, you know, I started reaching the point where I was, you know, sort of constantly on projects. I was traveling a lot and I was starting to feel myself burning out and had a chance to take a step back to spend some time at Microsoft Research Cambridge as a visiting fellow. And while I was there doing the research that became my book, The Distraction Addiction, about you know technology and distraction and focus, I also realized that while I was there about halfway through, that I was getting all kinds of stuff done. I was reading a lot. I was having these great ideas, but I didn't feel like time pressured and overwhelmed the way that you always do here in Silicon Valley. That's just like, you know, part of the air. And it started me thinking that, you know, the assumption that we've all kind of inculcated here, all absorbed here, which is that overwork and burnout are essentially like the price of doing good work and that you have to perpetually be always behind, you know, or if, and you're kind of locked in this race between succeeding before you exhaust yourself. That maybe that approach actually is completely backward and that we actually can achieve more for a longer period and do deeper work if we recognize the power of rest. And that, you know, that experience stayed with me, eventually became the subject of my book, Rest, where I had kind of investigated the neuroscience and the psychology that explained how it is that sort of rest turns out to be a really important ingredient in creative lives, how it sparks imaginative thinking, and sort of how it helps us not only be more creative, but more creative for more of our lives. And then Shorter, you know, is about how organizations can take the lessons of rest and put them into practice, mainly by moving to things like four-day work weeks or six-hour days. So kind of taking, you know, what often is this kind of privileged way of working that is accessible to people who have a lot of control over their time or are already really successful and can kind of dictate the terms of their work and make it and kind of democratizing it and turning it into something that is not just good for people, but is also good for organizations, is good for families, and ultimately is good for the economy and society. So that's the answer to how I got into all this and kind of where I've gone with it. I'm really excited to be getting into some of the topics that you cover in your books. But you know, before we get to that, you know, as somebody who is a futurist and a technology forecaster, mm-hmm. where, where do you see technology headed in the next two to five years? You know, I think that the outlines of the major things that we're all going to be dealing with are fairly clear, right? We're going to see sort of continued developments and things like artificial intelligence and internet of things, sort of a a kind of expansion of sort of robotics and automation into all kinds of new areas. So, and I think they kind of represented at home by different sorts of smart objects. I think we're also seeing some really interesting stuff starting to emerge with stuff 
like, you know, autonomous and driverless vehicles, which are not so much about like autonomous vehicles that carry people. But I think the really interesting stuff is starting to happen around stuff like freight carriage, right? Sort of around sort of automated delivery of small things, whether it is moving blood supplies around in hospitals in East Africa by drone, which is something that's already happening, you know, to you know, automated robotic delivery of sort of pizza packages to your home. So these are all trends that we're seeing already that are playing out and are continuing to do so. I think that the other thing that we're going to be, you know, another thing that is clearly going to become more important are technologies around kind of public health and public safety. And I think that coronavirus has revealed the degree to which we have accidentally designed a world that is as friendly to viruses as it is to humans. If you look at something like the open office, for example, right, you know, part of the long tables, you know, the common spaces, all that, you know, lots of glass and stainless steel. Viruses turn out to love that. That's an environment that they can thrive in. You know, with that recirculated air, common spaces that everyone's handling, you know, conference rooms, collaborative centers. And so you know, architects, urban designers, they're going to have to figure out how to use things like you know, automation, remote work, robotics, etc., to redesign and reconstruct working space so that they are safer places to be. And I think connecting to shorter, you know, one of the things that I've been really interested in the last couple of months is how we can redesign time, how we can redesign workday to meet those challenges as well. But I think that when you are looking at technology trends, it's often not the case that there is some completely weird thing that futurists know about that nobody else does. You know, very often the kind of the sort of broad picture is something that we all can see. The challenge is figuring out how it's going to play out in different industries or different parts of the world, thinking about how we can control and shape those technologies and their uses so that they give us, you know, more flexibility, more autonomy, more freedom, as opposed to just, you know, eliminating our jobs or doing other bad things. So that's where I think all this stuff is going. So in this vision of the future that you have, what do you think will be some of the biggest concerns that society will be facing? So I think that public health has risen to public consciousness in a way that it doesn't usually accept for things like, you know, events like Ebola or SARS. You know, if you travel to Asia, you go through airports, you go through public spaces, you had already seen changes in accessibility and transit and so forth that were a response to SARS in 2013. I think we're going to see the same kinds of things here in the States as well. So, you know, a really simple example is a dramatic increase in the use of, you know, infrared cameras and things to do temperature checks for people as they go in and out of buildings or other kinds of spaces to guard against people coming in who, you know, have fevers. I think that questions around sort of how to automate different kinds of industrial functions or transportation or so on are going to get even more urgent at a time when it looks like we're going to have to do some economic rebuilding. You know, we are probably going to go into a recession and stay there for a while. And as we fight our way out of it, one option to increase productivity is to automate all kinds of stuff and just throw a lot of people out of work. But, you know, sort of create an economy in which Wall Street and the owners of the robot do even better. It's also possible to use those same technologies, though, to empower workers, to augment their abilities, to help them do work that is more valuable and more meaningful. And it is not cast in stone which way we deploy these technologies. And so I think that, uh, you know, that particularly in a time where we're probably going to be facing some substantial economic challenges, that's going to become another big thing that we're all going to be talking about. The third 
third thing that I think that, you know, I would flag is issues around technology and kind of equity and social justice, right? There were academics who for years have been talking about how algorithms, how, you know, sort of predictive policing systems, facial recognition systems, how these unintentionally encode racial biases and presumptions about, you know, who is deserving of suspicion or who is, you know, who is a potential criminal, quote unquote. And I think that we, you know, we're at a point where it's really clear that these are things that we need to address because they have very big implications and negative impacts on a lot of us. I think that will be another another big area in which we have to figure out how to make technology better and how to make it work better for us. So speaking of how to make technology work better for us, what can we do now and perhaps going into the future to mitigate our distraction from technology? Right. You know, I think that there are a couple big things to flag. You know, I think the first is that we live in a world that is designed to distract us. And indeed that, you know, when we and we interact on a daily basis with products like Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, that are not only designed to distract us, but make money doing so, right? You know, they have armies of behavioral scientists who figure out how they can boost engagement just a little bit. So we face, I think, bigger challenges than, you know, any generation has in technology-driven distraction. That said, I think it's also the case that, you know, as humans, we not only have a capacity to sort of be diverted by these, you know, shiny, blink cool things, but we also have great capacities to focus, to concentrate, to place our, you know, to consciously direct our attention. And I think that, you know, even as we recognize that these technologies are trying to kind of tear that down, we always have the ability to make choices and to build that up and to build it back up. What that requires essentially is practice. It is about recognizing the ways in which these technologies are designed to to capture and to commodify our, our attention, recognizing what's at stake, how much better our lives can be when we retain the capacity to focus and sort of being mindful about how we use technologies so that we can the more focused, more concentrated version of versions of ourselves we want rather than you know have our consciousness be at uh, pushed and pulled by devices and by service providers. So, you know, I think it's, you know, one of the things, one of the, the kind of encouraging things I have seen with the companies I've been looking at, the ones that move to four-day weeks is that they actually attack the distraction problem head on, right? Distraction is, is actually a pretty big problem in the workplace. There are studies that show that between, you know, technology distractions, between people coming over and asking, you know, you know, that one quick question that turns into a 10-minute conversation, between meetings and other things, people actually lose between two and four hours of productive work time every day. So if you can get a handle on that stuff in the workplace, right? If you can make meetings shorter, you can be more mindful about how you use technology, you can go a long way to actually decreasing the amount of time that you spend at work without affecting your productivity at all. And you can learn things in the workplace about how to get a handle on this problem that you can then use in the rest of your life, you know, or if you're everywhere else in your life. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, it's very interesting. And yeah, I think I've suffered from that attention residue quite often, you know, switching between tasks and, you know, getting an instant message to pull your focus away. But I would love to get into your book rest. Sure. Let's start at the top here. Like, what is rest and what's the problem with it? So the problem with rest these days is we don't we don't take it seriously enough and we don't get enough of it. I think that in addition to being to living in a world that's trying to, you know, constantly distract us, we also tend to work in places that assume that we ought to overwork. 
right? That overwork is actually kind of a badge of honor, that there's a sort of moral value to it, and that people who are successful work titanically long hours, right? I think our, you know, our vision of success is of people like, say, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, right? People who are multi-billionaires before they're 30, who work incredibly long periods, who motivate other people to do so. And as opposed to the old vision of what kind of success looked like, which was you work your way up the ladder, you know, you wait your turn. And then finally, you know, late in your career, you reach the C-suite or, you know, you become CEO. These days, it happens very fast or not at all. And so one casualty of that is a recognition of the value that rest plays in both restoring our capacity to do good work and restoring our capacity to be creative, to do innovative things. However, you know, there has been a huge amount of work done in neuroscience and psychology and organizational behavior in management that shows just how costly overwork is, both for individuals and for organizations, that shows how beneficial, you know, regular breaks, be they, you know, regular shifts, be they vacations, sabbaticals, what have you, can be both for people and for companies. And I think body of work, including, you know, including my book, that explains the particular pattern that super creative and productive people develop or kind of discover that allow them to do really good work while working far fewer hours than, you know, than most of us think are necessary to do, you know, sort of to do world-class work. I think that the, you know, this is, we live in a world that doesn't take work seriously, but we also live in a world that provides us with all the tools necessary to figure out how to harness rest and bring it back in our lives and use it as something that makes our lives better and makes our work better. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like a symptom of the hustle culture. Right, mm-hmm. where, it's, where it's glorified to, to work exactly hours. Right. Um, you know, and I think that there is, you know, it is not to say that there is not plenty of value and potential reward in, you know, sort of in, in working hard, right? Or in concentrating and focusing deeply on things, on, you know, on really significant problems. I think the problem comes when we treat the long hours kind of as an end in themselves. And when we as individuals or as managers assume that there's a correlation between long sort of between long hours and overwork and productivity and accomplishment the lines between those two things are not as not as well drawn as we think and it's also the case that we know very well that overwork has really clear downside right that people who work long hours for a long period or organizations that do the same thing are more prone to burnout to you know big mistakes to running into issues that actually make them less productive than they would be working 40 hours and so i think that but you know recognizing that after a certain period you know that overwork is actually deeply destructive and counterproductive is something that, you know, that lots of us kind of recognize in principle, but are challenged to actually put into practice. And so I think that you know, one of the things that both Rest and Shorter do are make the case for that and especially in Shorter, explain how we can, you know, how we can redesign our time, redesign our work so that we avoid all of the problems of overwork while getting the benefits of, you know, sort of focus, focus and rational hard 
work and high productivity. Anders Ericsson has this concept of deliberate practice. You've got mm-hmm. this concept of deliberate rest, which I found to be fascinating. Can you right. just describe what deliberate rest is and how can we incorporate that into our lives? Sure. You know, so the idea of deliberate rest actually also comes out of that Anders Ericsson study of violinists and sort of how they practice. What Ericsson found was, I think as lots of people who've read either his work or Malcolm Gladwell's you know, 10,000 Hours Rule essay found that you know top performers practice regularly. It takes roughly 10,000 hours or so to become really good at something. But one of you know, but also they practice differently than just kind of ordinary ordinary performers. They tend to be more focused in what they're practicing. They get more feedback. It's a more targeted thing that is aimed at specific improvements in performance as opposed to you know trying one more you know trying one more time to do the same thing that sort of that you already know how to do. One of the other things, though, that, that Erickson found was that not only did the top performers practice differently, they also rested differently. They actually slept more than average performers, about an hour more per day, because they took naps in the afternoon. But And while they did not spend as much time in doing leisure activities, they were better able to account for their time and to explain their hobbies. And that made me realize that not only were these people practicing deliberately, they also were resting deliberately. You know, so more broadly, the idea of deliberate rest is that it is possible to incorporate periods of rest, hobbies, and what I call into sort of your daily routine and into your life in ways that both increase your capacity sort of for work, that help you become more creative, and, and also just help you have a better life. So that's what the idea of deliberate rest is. So a lot of folks in data science space, we do a ton of studying, research, knowledge discovery, a lot of knowledge work and intellectual work, very right. different from the work that you know a violinist does or a, an athlete does. So why is it that rest is important for those of us who don't use our bodies or tactile kind of appendages, but use our brains? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I would say that most cognitive work is actually more physical than we realize, both in the sense that when you talk to philosophers of mind, one of the things you learn is that there is a kind of physicality to cognition that we engage constantly, but we tend not to think about. So the philosopher Alvin Noe, who is, I think, at New York University now, has a book about action and perception, where he talks about vision and perception being, um, you know, being very active thing, right? It's not, our eyes aren't like cameras that simply absorb information. When we look at stuff, we're actually interacting with the world, interacting with our subjects a lot more than we realize. More broadly, I think there's a physical dimension to cognition that means that it is embodied and sort of makes demands on our bodies that bring it somewhat closer to, you know, to sports or to manual labor than we might realize. The other thing is that, you know, while we tend not to think of it this way, but you know, the work of doing stuff like talking to people, being on Zoom calls, you know, this actually is kind of cognitively and physically draining. You know, even though if you compare it to like the real work of like doing construction or being an electrician or something like that, it never really quite feels like work. You know, and I have certainly spent my life thinking, you know, compared to what my uncles do that, you know, this is not real work. But in fact, there, you know, there is irreducible physical component to cognitive sort of, to, uh, to cognitive labor. And and so what that means is that, you know, our capacity to do that kind of work is actually enhanced by developing our, you know, our physical abilities, developing our stamina, and that sort of the more that, the more that we do that, um, the better we are able to do the hard, to do the hard work of, you know, creative thinking and deep thinking that, 
I think, that so many of us strive to do. So that's why we should pay attention to that. That's why we should think of cognitive work more as a kind of embodied physical thing than we normally do. So is this physical aspect of cognition, is this the default mode network of the brain that you talk about? Yeah, the defa- I mean, the default mode network is connected to that partly. I think the default mode network is mainly something that neuroscientists study and have been kind of fascinated with over the last 20 or so years. Really briefly, you know, the default mode network is the set of brain patterns that activate when we kind of relax our attention. We don't think about, we don't, you know, we don't think about anything at all. We kind of zone out. And it feels like when we do that, that our brains are kind of slowing down, but in fact, they're not. It's just, they switch into a kind of different gear. And what's fascinating about that is that the part Parts of the brain that are that kind of link up together and get active when we when we don't think about anything at all are the same parts that are associated with creative thinking, with sort of visual thinking, and that this and what we suspect is that this is why this is the kind of physical mechanism that explains things like spontaneous memory or or a spontaneous discovery. You know, we've all had that experience where you're trying to remember something like you know who is the actor who is in that movie and that TV show and that other thing. You, you know, you can't, you can't remember who they are, but five minutes later, you're doing something else and all of a sudden, their name pops into your head. That's the default mode network continuing to work on problems even while our attention has moved somewhere else. And it seems that the same network operating kind of at a deeper, more profound level is also the same thing that's at work when Einstein comes up with a special theory of relativity or, you know, Picasso comes up with the idea of painting from multiple perspectives simultaneously. It's the same. It's the same basic physical mechanism that you know, under uh, or of go uh, operating at the level of you know the kind of everyday memory, the everyday aha moment to you know the most profound. So that's the default mode network at work. And I think this is something data scientists could all relate to because we've all had those moments where we're working on a really big gnarly problem, and then we step away for a while, maybe go you know go home, fix it, mm-hmm. wash the dishes, take a shower, and then ah. Oh, just comes to us. That's the default mode network at work. Awesome. Absolutely. You know, and that's something we often think of that as something that's like totally mysterious, but it's actually something that, you know, it's not something that you can control, but it is something that you can learn to harness better. And one of the great lessons that I learned in the course of writing REST was that, you know, a lot of really great scientists and artists and writers kind of craft their day partly to give themselves time to rest, but to rest in ways that give their default mode networks, they're kind of subconscious, you know, they create a subconscious plenty of time to work on problems that they haven't solved, right? And so the great example of this is people who will construct routines, daily routines where they work really, really hard on problems for three or four hours, right? Don't answer the phone, no interruptions, no nothing. And then almost immediately after that, they go for a run or go work in the garden or do something else that is physical, it's different, but it's not very cognitively demanding. And in that period, you kind of, your, you know, your subconscious, your default mode network continues working on the problems that have just occupied your conscious attention. It gives your sort of creative subconscious time to work on these without your kind of conscious intervention and to explore possibilities, to explore solutions that, you know, that have eluded your 
own, you know, focused effort. That's the phenomena that we have when, you know, you're blocked on a problem and, you know, you go for a walk and you come back to it and, you know, two minutes later, you've got the answer, right? Because your default mode network has been working on it that whole time. Well, it turns out you can build a whole routine around that to help you be more creative, to help you be more focused, to solve problems faster, and to get back the energy that you actually spend in those really super focused periods so that you can, you know, work better, you don't burn out, and, you know, you still do really cool work. What's up, artists? I would love to hear from you. Feel free to send me an email to theartistsofdatascience at gmail.com. Let me know what you love about the show. Let me know what you don't love about the show. And let me know what you would like to see in the future. I absolutely would love to hear from you. I've also got open office hours that I will be hosting. And you can register by going to bitly.com com forward slash a d s o h i look forward to hearing from you all and i look forward to seeing you in the office hours let's get back to the episode so how can we convince our boss that all we need is uh-huh. a, a solid four hours Right. I would start with the data, right? I mean, the sort of the studies of the sort of cognitive costs of multitasking, of meetings, of interruptions that find, you know, that those two to four hours every day get lost. I think also that, you know, we all, we all recognize the, you know, how much more we can get done in two or four really focused hours than in like eight or 10 distracted ones. And finally, that this is not just an individual problem. It's not just a challenge of, like self-discipline, right? We often think of these kinds of psychological or cognitive things as just issues between like, you know, our brains and our eyes and our keyboards. But in fact, there is an important social dimension to attention, to cognition, and to creativity. And, you know, if you do things like set aside particular times of day in the workplace where you don't have to answer the phone, where you have permission to be heads down and a little antisocial, you can actually get an enormous amount done. And I don't think there should not be a manager anywhere who is against the idea of, you know, people being able to focus and get stuff done because fundamentally that's what offices are supposed to do, despite the fact that they're often designed, you know, to do exactly the opposite. So what are some horrible ways that people are resting and we should probably stop resting in that way? And how can we replace those with better ways of rest? Mm -hmm. You know, I would phrase it not so much in terms of horrible ways that people are resting, but in terms of like misconception. And so, you know, I think that we often think of rest as totally passive and leisurely, right? It involves sitting on the couch with a remote in one hand and like a bag of salty snacks in the other. But it turns out that the most restorative, most creatively stimulating kinds of rest are actually a lot more physical and active. Things like, you know, exercise, long walks, working in the garden. Kind of physical activity is often more restorative and it is also, you know, it's psychologically engaging, but not so engaging as to prevent us from being able to mind wander and to kind of explore ideas even while we're, you know, out on the sort of out on the the the, the running path or hiking trail. Another aspect of of I think rest that we overlook is that rest is actually a skill. 
Rest is something that we can get better at. It's a bit like, you know, like breathing, right? It's breathing is completely natural. It's something we do without thinking about. But if you're an athlete or if you're a singer, you can use, you know, you learn to pay attention to your breath so that you can run faster or you can, you know, project to the back of the auditorium. Rest is the same way. You know, I think that we, you know, we can we can learn ways of incorporating it into our daily schedules. We can make we can learn to pay attention to those kinds of leisure activities or hobbies that turn out to be more restful than others and that provide us with a greater amount of, you know, detachment and creative and psychological renewal. So I think those are the things that, you know, I think we need to recognize about rest and how to do it better. Now, I think that the, you know, for people who are like really intensively focused on their work, people who really like their work, the challenge for them is very often to find something that is as engaging as their work, right? Winston Churchill talks about this in a book called Painting as a Passon, where he says that for, you know, for politicians, for people who are accustomed to action, that you can't just tell them to do nothing. You have to give them an alternative to their regular work. For him, it was painting. And I think that, uh, you know, people who are super successful and super busy, who have engaging hobbies, find ones that are as cognitively challenging as their regular work, but in a very, usually, but in a very different kind of area. So lots of executives and lots of scientists, for example, are rock climbers or mountain climbers. And for them, climbing is either like, you know, it's sort of like management or it's like science. Um, for scientists, it's like science in the sense that you're engaging with the natural world. You are taking a big problem and you're having to break it down in a whole bunch of little parts. There is a technical aspect to it, but of course, it's far more physically engaging than anything you do in the laboratory. And it's also, you know, it gets you out into the world. And at the end of the day, you've either reached the top of your climb or you haven't. So the satisfactions, the rewards come very quickly. And so it's everything that they like about doing science without the frustrations and in a very compressed time scale. I find when I talk to people about what, you know, about their hobbies and what they like about them, they all report the same thing, which is that there's this important cognitive dimension to it that at this, you know, so it's kind of like the best parts of their jobs. At the same time, it's in a very different kind of context and the rewards come far more quickly. The final thing is that there's often some very personal dimension to it. It's something that's almost kind of autobiographical. So, you know, people might be into restoring cars because they come from a family that, you know, was in that, you know, was into cars, you know, they grew up around them. Or likewise, you know, people who were into, you know, scuba diving or model making because they had close friends who did that. Or it connects, you know, connects them back to some family tradition or some earlier part of their life. And so all of those things together serve to turn these hobbies into things that are sort of super engaging, that can actually compete with their day jobs and can provide, you know, another outlet that reminds them of what they like best about their work so that when things are really challenging, you have the resilience to, you know, to push through and, you know, sort of, and to continue against the odds to do good work. Really interesting. I think that speaks to one of the reasons why I like golf so much is because it reminds me of the gradient descent algorithm in, in a sense. Uh, <laughs> so you've touched on this a little bit, you know, in, in our conversation, I want to dig a little bit deeper. So mm -hmm. how, how does having a daily routine help us be more creative? How does that help us be more productive? Mm -hmm. So, well, you know, I, it depends partly on the daily routine, right? Sort of, if you do a lot of self-destructive things, you're not going to be as creative. But 
sort of a good routine builds in, I think, builds in time for focused work and for rest, number one. And why that's important is that our creative minds seem to do better when, you know, with these routines. Um, Stephen King has this line about how, you know, the muse will descend if it knows that you're working. And we have this idea that, you know, there's this kind of romantic idea of creativity that holds that you get an inspiration and you kind of rush to the, you know, to the keyboard or the blackboard, you know, when you, you know, and 18 hours later, you come out with a concerto or finished theorem or whatever. In reality, most creative work operate in the opposite way, right? You start work, you get into a problem. And then once you're really into it, that's when kind of the muse appears and sort of the serious advances, the breakthroughs start to happen. And so, you know, it's so creative work, you very rarely is a game of gigantic leaps and bounds punctuated by long periods of doing nothing at all. Most sustainable creative work is actually work, sort of proceeds much sort of much more reliably and much better if it's embedded in a set of routines that support it well. I think the other thing is that you know humans you know we have you know we have daily we have daily rhythms right um, and and one of the really valuable things we can do is learn to pay attention to those so that we match up the times when we are at our most potentially creative to the times in our schedules where we're doing the most heads down, super focused work. This is one reason that lots of writers write in the super early morning. And there is something about like the period between about 5 a.m. and 9 a.m. where it's like the door to the subconscious is still a little bit open. And it's possible to do work of a quality in those hours. It is virtually impossible to do at any other time. And so this is why you see even, you know, people like Ernest Hemingway, you know, who was, you know, this was an incredibly active guy a, you know, deep sea fisherman, you know, could drink with the best of them. But every morning he got up and he was at his desk by six in the morning, no matter how late he'd been up the night before. And having that routine was, he thought, really essential for, you know, for doing great work and to judge by his output and that of lots of other you know, great writers and scientists and mathematicians and other people, he was absolutely right. So routines serve as a foundation for and support for creativity rather than, you know, an obstacle to it, as we often tend to believe. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I've done some research and reading on routines and creativity myself. And ever since I started to implement a very strict regiment into my daily schedule, I found that my creative output and productivity has gone through the roof. Uh, granted, now my routine has kind of been thrown for a loop because of this whole COVID situation and a newborn yeah. baby upstairs. Aha. Uh, yeah. But have you by any chance read Robin Sharma's book, The 5am Club? No, I haven't. No, it sounds like something I should I should check out though. Yeah, definitely. He's got this this uh, concept of the 20-20-20 formula where you know, you're know you up at or up by 5am and 20 minutes you work out, 20 minutes you meditate, 20 minutes you read and you know, have that structure in place and then go about your day. And it's, it's you know, like you say, he says something about something similar to what you just said, how those early hours in the morning, there's a special magic to that time. Yeah, I'm definitely I'm down here in my basement every morning by like 4:30 a.m., 5 a.m. It, it like you said, it sounds counterproductive, right? Like it's like, oh man, like it, it seems like it's an obstacle to being creative, but really the obstacle is the way. Like the way to creativity is by having 
structure and rigor in place. Um, thank you for that. So let's, let's jump into your book shorter. Sure. So you talk a lot about design thinking in the book. I think the whole framework of the book is, is pretty much based on, on design thinking. Do you mind quickly touching on what design thinking is and maybe walk us through that framework? Sure. Well, you know, design thinking is, you know, it's a, it's a kind of way of sort of thinking about and solving problems that develop in Silicon Valley here in like the 1960s and 1970s. And in contrast to, let's say, industrial design or, you know, more conventional kinds of product design, um, I think the, you know, the hallmarks of design thinking are, number one, that it involves a lot more attention to, or attention to users throughout the process. You try to engage with them earlier, listen to them. You also, and this connects to the second thing, kind of sort of offer them the opportunity to like play around with prototypes very early on, see what they do with them. And then you kind of iterate and improve the product based upon, you know, based upon what you see, you give them another, pro, you know, version 2.0, they play with that. You see, you know, sort of you get feedback from that and then you, you know, you do another release and on and on. I mean, you know, you know, in a way, a lot of software product development is a kind of is a sort of build on design thinking in the sense that there is this naturally iterative quality driven largely by user feedback. And then so there were a couple and in shorter, one of the reasons that I talk about design thinking or use it as a framework for structuring the book is that a number of the companies I look at are design firms are software firms that are led by people with design backgrounds. And so when they were talking about the journey that their companies went on, they kind of naturally fell into the design thinking framework as a way of sort of explaining what it was that they were doing and what stages they went through. And so the most important parts of it were the kind of the sort of iterative phase of or ideational phase of looking at how your company and how your time is organized right now, working through what you imagine would be necessary to make, you know, uh, make a four-day week work instead of a, you know, instead of five days, thinking through the different scenarios of what could go wrong, how you deal with it, and engaging everybody in the company in that exercise. And then doing a lot of prototyping where you allow people to experiment with different ways of holding meetings, of using technology, automating processes, you know, thinking about what parts of their job they can outsource, what stuff they can automate, and what things require, you know, really like dedicated focus time and then testing that, um, sharing the, you know, sharing the results of these different little experiments so that they become best practices across, you know, across the company. So for example, there's a software and design firm in Copenhagen called IIH Nordic, where they have run something like 300 different experiments on everything from, you know, the kinds of snacks that they have in the kitchen, you know, high carb, high sugar versus high protein and trying to measure the effects that that different snacks have on people's productivity to, you know, experiments with using technology in meetings to using, you know, outsourcing certain, you know, certain functions to assistance in the Philippines or automated scripts. And these are things that, you know, individuals will try for a while and then collect some data on, share the results with everybody. You know, sometimes really successful things get adopted widely by everyone. Sometimes they get discarded and, you know, and if they're discarded, then, you know, the experiment doesn't work out. Then you try something else. But I think that 
that, you know, that spirit of continuous iteration of proto, you know, of kind of brainstorming, prototyping, testing, and then going back and improving is you know, the key thing that you see in these companies over and over again. It's a key thing that you see in how people talk about their work. That they take a very experimental kind of a uh, kind of approach to it. It's a very sort of Carol Dweck. It's a very kind of growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset, right? You know, one in which you can learn from your failures. You know, you're not afraid to try new things and to experiment and to see sort of what doesn't work in order so you know in order to get a better handle on what does. So, and then I think that the other important thing about the design thinking approach is that we all we tend not to think about time as something that we can design. Right? Most successful design projects are you know objects or services, right? So you know the Apple Mouse or you know the Palm Pilot. But it turns out that it's possible to design our days, to design meetings, to design processes using very much these same tools. And we can do so with the same kind of prototyping experiment test mindset. And we can get improvements that are, you know, in how we spend our time that are just as significant as improvements in the products or the services that we use. So that's the long answer to, you know, why hang the design thinking, all of this around the kind of design thinking frame. How can this framework then help us work better, smarter, and less? Mm -hmm. So I think that I have looked at more than a hundred companies now across a variety of industries that have moved to five, you know, from five day weeks, you know, or more to four day weeks to six hour days, you know, 30 hour weeks, or even 25 hours. And what I'm seeing them do is, you know, and like I said, you know, they all take this kind of iterative experimental approach, one that often is pretty data driven, but they all do a fairly common set of things, right? Just focusing on the knowledge workplaces rather than, you know, the nursing homes or garages or factories. The first thing is, they make meetings a lot shorter. They go, you know, standing meetings almost all disappear and other meetings go from a default of an hour to a default of like 15 or 20 minutes. They also tend to get smaller and they're more focused, right? No meeting occurs without an agenda and you have the minimum number of people necessary in the room to make a decision or to to be, you know, to get an update as absolutely necessary. Another thing that they will all do is they think a lot about um, how to design the day to have those, you know, to build in and to protect those periods of really defocused work. And then the other thing is that they tend, you know, they all learn to use technology in more productive ways. So what that means is outsourcing less valuable, more routine kinds of tasks and figuring out how to use technology to augment their highest value added sort of most creative kinds of work. So a really simple example is a company called Farnell Clark, which is an accountancy in the UK. They were an early pioneer in cloud-based accounting, which is you know using cloud-based accounting software that is shared both by the accounting company, but also by clients. What this allows is for easier input of you know, basic financial data, but it also makes things like tax reporting, tax filing much simpler, right? That's, that's no longer a thing that takes weeks and weeks of time, but can be done in days, which frees accountants up from doing a lot of routine stuff, you know, kind of routine filing to being able to do stuff like looking at bigger patterns in spending, investment, talking to clients about, you know, doing more kind of advisory service stuff, which is, you know, which is stuff that is more, which is more interesting to them, but also more valuable to clients. So 
you know, that's one example of how they've, you know, how a company has used technology to simultaneously reduce the amount of time that they spend working, but increase the value of the work that they do. And this is something that plays out in, you know, different ways in different companies, but all of them are looking for those opportunities to, you know, uh, to outsource, outsource or automate the less important stuff while augmenting their ability to do the really creative stuff. The final important thing that they do is that they do all this stuff together rather than individually. You know, as I said before, there's, you know, we often think of, you know, productivity and creativity as like these individual psychological things, but they have this really important social dimension to them. And the companies that do this best, that are most successful at shortening their working hours without sacrificing productivity or profitability or creativity are ones that see that attention is social, that creativity is social, and and that by solving problems of things like distraction for everybody, you get results that are far, far superior than the ones that come from sort of me just trying to maximize my own utility or you just trying to maximize yours. So that's the stuff that I see or uh, the other particular things that I see companies doing. And, you know, they are and they're trying a variety, variety of ways to do that, um, you know, going through, you know, ideation and protocols typing and testing um, in order to make all that stuff happen. So so what would you say is the biggest difference in terms of leadership mindset, leadership mentality between companies that are innovative, taking on these shorter work weeks and, you know, companies that switch to maybe a pseudo shorter work week in the form of a four, four day, 10 hour work week? Right. I think probably the single biggest difference is that they think differently about time and the relationship between like time and productivity. They do not see working longer hours as, as a sign that things are going well, but rather they see overwork working long hours as sort of pathologies. They're indicators that something is broken in the company that needs to be fixed. I think that, you know, another important thing is that they see, they they also think differently about their people, right? All of them are trying to create more sustainable places to work where people could have very long careers. In contrast to the way that many of their competitors work, which is to bring in a lot of young people work them to death, and then discard them after several years. I think that the idea that reigns in these companies is that you may be doing something very, very different 10 years from now, but you will be here in 10 years and you will be able, you know, and you will be a lot better at what you do now. Part of that improvement in quality will be that you can actually do the work in less time, right? You know, as one of as one founder put it, one of the things I realized is that anybody can sit in a chair for 12 hours a day. You know, you give anybody enough time to solve a problem and they can solve it. The person who really impresses me now is the person who doesn't need, you know, 12 hours to solve a problem, but can do it in six and be out of here. That's the person who, you know, that's the person I want to hire. And so I think that, you know, that that what happens with these people is that they, you know, they essentially rewire the relationship between time and expertise and productivity and come to see overwork not as a good thing, but you know, but you know, a good thing to be encouraged, but um, a bad thing that they want to, you know, sort of redes- you know, redesign out of existence. So that's that's how that's how they differ. Yes, it's almost like you know, maybe 50, 60 years ago, when you're working in a factory, there might have been a linear relationship between the amount of hours you work and the output you produce. But as we're shifting into this knowledge economy, there's no longer that kind of linear relationship between 
time in, productivity out, right? Right, yeah. And indeed, you know, sort of the relationship between time spent and output, even in factories, was not as, you know, not as ironclad as we think, right? Basically, people could work in factories, could work overtime for periods of a few weeks, and then you start getting tired, you start making mistakes, you start to burn out, and your productivity would fall to below what it was when you were working 40 hours. There was a, this was discovered in things like optical factories and munitions factories, right? Places where small mistakes really, really matter. And what they found, you know, what we've known for more than a century is that you can sustain periods of like 70 hour weeks for about maybe four to six weeks or so. You can get a burst. But after that, you're back to where you were. Same productivity levels as when you were working 40 hours with, you know, the added benefit of people, you know, getting sick and burning out. So, but I think that it's even more true today. Basically, you know, intensive periods of focused work beat periods of, you know, long semi-distracted work. Knowledge work is a little bit more like high intensity interval training than, you know, like running a marathon, it turns out. Um, That intensivity turns out, you know, turns out to be a better route to higher performance and better results than you know the long than the long long grind so i know some companies they opt to do flexible time instead of shorter hours Mm -hmm. and that's not really the same is it no it's not and traditionally you know flexible work flexible hours have had some you know some organizational organizational challenges around them i think a lot of people there's uh, sociologists who've looked at this talk about um the flexibility stigma and you know which is that you know first of all in organizations where you know long hours are a badge of honor flexible work inherently looks kind of suspicious it's also problematic because when you're working flexibly or when you're working from home, the person who is doing so often has a kind of subtle obligation to do extra work in order to stay visible to their managers, to you know, stay in contact with colleagues or you know, project heads. And so they end up actually working as much or more as they would when they were just in the office. At the same time, they also encounter the kind of enduring suspicion of, you know, well, why is this person, you know, not around when the rest of the team is, you know, here every night after dinner? And so it turns, you know, so in many organizations, flexible work turns out to be more, you know, turns out to be challenging for everybody in ways that nobody intends. It'll be interesting to see in the future after all of us, have, you know, after so many of us have had experience with working from home with flexible work, whether the stigma around flexible work starts to ease or not. Um, I certainly hope it does, but it is very different from um, shortening work weeks for everyone because when you shorten work weeks, for everyone. There is no stigma around people working less. Now, everybody gets to do it. Everybody shares the challenge. Everybody shares the benefits. And so it makes it a very different kind of proposition than when it's just one person or a couple people doing it. Thank you for that. So last formal question before we jump into a quick lightning round here. And that's, what's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? So, you know, I think that the the single biggest thing is, I would say, take rest seriously, right? That, you know, rest is not something that you get when you've finished your work. It's not something that the world gives you. These days, we're never finished and the world always has one more thing to throw at you. 
So we have to carve out time for rest. We have to defend that time. And we have to take rest itself seriously. We have to recognize that this, you know, that this actually does have value both in the immediate run and in the long run for us, for our employers, for our families, for the world. If there's one thing that I could convince you know, that everybody of, it would be that. All right. So let's jump into a quick lightning round here. All so right. what is your favorite way to rest? Yeah, I go on walks with my dogs. I've got two of them and it's, you know, it's my favorite way and it's their favorite way. So if you could put up a billboard anywhere in the world, what would it say and why? You know, I suppose it would be, you know, take rest seriously, you know, for the, for the, so, you know, for the reasons I just, <laughs> you know, I just, just outlined. So what's something you believe that other people think is crazy? You know, a year ago, I would have said that believing in the possibility of the four-day week was the thing. I think there's still a lot of skepticism around it, but fortunately, people are taking it more seriously. They're at least more willing to hear the argument for it. So, um, but, you know, there's still plenty of people who think it's crazy. So, you know, I will, I will stick with that, that, you know, the four-day week is possible right now, and your company can do it at, you know, at virtually no cost to you with benefits both for you and your, you know, and the organization and your bottom line and your clients and your employees. It's a win-win all around. So you've done a lot of great research in your books for neuroscience, kind of understanding the nature of the human mind. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the most bizarre aspect or quality of the human mind that you've come across? You know, I think the default mode network is the strangest and most wonderful thing. The fact that, you know, we can, we think, you know, see this, see these functional areas switching on in the time it takes us to blink. I mean, literally, sort of, that's how, that's how, that's how fast they, sort of, they turn on is really incredible. And more broadly, it's a reminder that there is an incredible amount of stuff going on in our brains that we are not really aware of. Now, we have this vision of ourselves as conscious agents fully engaged in the world. And that is just, you know, it really is just not the case. There is so much else happening even within our own minds that, you know, that we are not in, that we're not in control of sometimes in very good kinds of ways that make our lives a lot more interesting than we, you know, than we could ever imagine. So what's an academic topic outside of data science that you think every data scientist should spend a little bit of time researching up on? You know, I think everybody should spend some time looking at the psychology of creativity. This stuff is both really, really interesting, but if you want to get better at whatever your job is, it's worth spending some time, you know, it's worth getting into. What's the number one book you'd recommend our audience read and your most impactful takeaway from it? You know, obviously, other than my own books, I would nominate Flow by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. It is a life-changing book. And as an explanation of a mental state that I think every 
you know, every smart person, you know, experiences and probably wants to experience more of. And as an explanation of why this is so rewarding and why it makes our lives great, it is, I think, without peer. It's a great book. There's a Mindset Flow Plus Smarter, Better, Faster uh, by Charles Duhigg. Mm-hmm. I read those three books in succession and my life has never been the same since yeah, then. No, they're, so, they're, all, they're all great. So if you could somehow get a magic telephone that allowed you to, to, to contact 20-year-old Alex Alex, what would you tell him? You know, probably buy Apple. <laughs> I think that the, you know, the, the challenge, the challenge with advising your younger self is that a lot of the really important things we learn, we learn the hard way. You know, we have to, I think we have to make some kinds of mistakes in order to become the people, uh, the people that we are. I suppose actually the really serious thing I would advise is have kids earlier. You know, I think that there is almost nothing that you do before you become a parent that is as significant or as life-changing as, you know, as what comes after. And also the more energy you have, the better because children are wonderful in many ways, but they're also vampires and they will suck up every ounce of time and attention and energy that you have. And so, well, when you, so that's, that's the, that's the other good reason for having them early rather than later. As a 37 year old brand new father myself, I wish I would have told myself that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So what does creativity have to do with being a good scientist? Well, you know, I think let's turn it around and say, how good a scientist can you be if you're not creative? right? The serious answer is that creativity is implicated in every part of science, whether you are going after, you know, sort of gigantic world-changing problems or whether you are solving really little ones. An awful lot more of our lives involve creativity and creative problem solving than we acknowledge. And I think that likewise, there are many kinds of work that we don't think of as involving creativity, whether it is, you know, bagging groceries or installing plumbing or wiring up a house that actually involve a lot of sort of solving tons of little problems and solving them in ways that allow us to get a little bit better at doing them the next time or that require a degree of imagination and sort of kind of conceptual leaping that not visible from the outside, but which is still essential for doing that work. So that's, you know, so I would say that you want to be creative because it's something that you're going to be using every single day and every single hour of, you know, sort of, of your work. So what song do you have on repeat right now? Um, I have been listening constantly to the new Bruce Hornsby album, um, mm-hmm. Absolute Zero. You know, Hornsby was known in, he was probably most popular in the late 80s for, you know, songs like Mandolin, Mandolin Rain and The Way It Is, you know, kind of which now are sort of easy listening sorts of piano dominated songs. And the thing is, you know, there are lots of people who once they reach the kind of stage in their career as Hornsby are just like they're playing the same stuff over and over again. Hornsby, in contrast, in this new album is working with experimental musicians, with Bon Iver, with like this avant-garde string quartet. And he's taking his old, you, know, you can still hear distinctive elements of the Hornsby sound, but they're like deconstructed and broken up in really amazingly interesting ways. 
And for me, for someone who grew up not only with Hornsby's music, but grew up in the same, basically the same neighborhood as him, you know, to hear this stuff processed in this wildly new novel way is, is both interesting really personally and a great reminder that you can, you know, you can continue exploring things, deepening your skills, but pushing, you know, pushing into new areas, no matter what stage you are in your career. So absolute zero. Definitely have to check that out. So what's the best advice you've ever received? Best advice I've ever received, you know, from my mentor, you know, maybe uh, be yourself only more so. So, which is how he advised me to sort of approach, um, approach interviews. So the other, you know, the other, the other great piece of advice is write every day. You know, I think going back to that idea of creativity being, um, you know, being something that is supported and sustained by routine. You know, I think that practicing every day is the way that we get really good at just about anything. So where can people find your books? You know, rest and shorter and distraction addiction are everywhere books can be found. You know, sort of uh, your local bookstore, Amazon. The library, you know, if you, uh, you know, or all those places. So that's so. Where. How can people connect with you, and where can they find you online? Sure. So I am on Twitter and Instagram at askpang, A S K P A N G. The Instagram is mainly pictures of the dogs, but you know. And then company website is strategy rest. So rest is rest became a top level domain a couple of years ago. Very happily for me. So strategy.rest. And it's also where you know, not only is there stuff about workshops and keynotes and you know, links to interviews or podcasts like these, but also samplings of the research that I'm continuing to do, looking at companies, schools, other kinds of organizations, governments that are moving to four-day weeks or you know, other kinds of shorter work weeks. Dr. Pang, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today. I really, really appreciate having you here. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's been a great time. 